You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, this is, you're going to recognize this as one of those. Um, teachings in the inquirers class, but I thought <clears throat> in this one-off buffer, I thought it might be helpful to have a refresher. So um, maybe you'll remember most of it, none of it. We'll see. Why do we do the things that we do? Let's begin with the first table of the law, the four first commandments, which contain our duty to God. The object of worship is the true God. The first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And those words before me mean before my face. So whatever we do in worship or service, we do it before God in his sight. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So this is the great object of our worship. We are to serve and worship no one else, nothing else. It's the foundation of true religion. It's the basis of acceptable worship. You know, somebody says, well, just be sincere. Well, (laughs) that's not true. Just have faith. Well, that's not true. It's got to be faith in the true God. We have to acknowledge God to be the only true God and our God. That's all required in the first commandment. The second commandment has to do with the manner of worship, which is prescribed by God himself in his word. So what we do in public worship is something he has commanded. It's not something we think is a good idea. It's not something necessarily that we like. It's what God has commanded sinners to do in order to draw near to him in public worship in a formal way. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them. That means depend on them for worship or discipleship, so it's not even teaching in Sunday school. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of them who hate me. God accounts the breakers of this commandment such as hate him. That's pretty serious and severe. So uh, this is one of the things that we talk about in Presbytery. I think this is one of those commandments of late that have become less and less important in people's minds, but I think it's extremely important. We must not make images. We must not offer worship by means invented or handed down by men, regardless of how good we might think it is. So anything we do in public worship, for example, has to have biblical support. You should be able to ask me, what are we doing? And I should be able to tell you, this is why we're doing it from Scripture. I can't just unilaterally introduce something in worship. It's what God has prescribed. Third commandment deals with the attitude of worship. And that attitude is to be characterized by reverence and awe. His name has to be hallowed, and all things in his worship are done decently and in order. Now, some people might say, well, that's kind of boring. Well, boring may it be, it's what God prescribes. And we come with our hearts. If our hearts are right, then the things he's appointed will satisfy the soul. Individual expression, personal desires should never distract anyone from corporate worship. I think I've told this story before, but a church that I was a part of a long time ago 
in my charismatic days, they decided one Sunday morning between services that it'd be a good idea to introduce a smoke machine. I don't know why. I wasn't part of the leadership. I was a brand new Christian. So at the second service, which was always more heavily populated, they turned on the smoke machine and everybody thought the building was on fire. They ran out. So it did not accomplish the purpose that they were trying to achieve. So individual expression, personal desires should never distract. Fourth, the time of worship is one day in seven, the first day of the week. And we know that particularly because Jesus was raised on Sunday, Sunday morning. And in doing so, he sanctified the first day of the week as a commemoration of the new creation. Seventh day was a commemoration of the first creation. Uh, the resurrection in many, in many ways commemorated the new creation. Any questions on the first table of the law? This is the foundation of our worship. Okay? Good. Okay, this is what we call the regulative principle of worship. You've probably heard this before. It's the principle that regulates worship. Okay, how are we going to do this? Well, first of all, Scripture distinguishes acceptable from unacceptable worship. There is such a thing as unacceptable worship. You know, it's not just being sincere. You can be sincere in offering unacceptable worship. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. That's worship, sacrifice, right? The heart's wrong. What they're doing is wrong. When Cain brought his vegetables, it was not a blood sacrifice. His sins could not be atoned for without a blood sacrifice. Also, he didn't have faith, but... The prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. So there you find that word acceptable. One's unacceptable, one's acceptable. Prayer is an important part of worship. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This is the grace of God. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. How, apostle? With reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So acceptable worship is that which God has appointed in his word and which is rendered from a heart filled with faith and offered with reverence and awe. And again, if I look back at my charismatic days, I think we were very sincere and we did love the Lord. And those people loved the Lord. They did. But I don't think we were trained very well because a lot of it was not reverent and there was not a lot of awe. It was very entertainment-oriented. And again, I'm not trying to detract from their hearts. I think, I thank God for them because they loved me, you know, but it wasn't reverent and it wasn't awe-filled. Scripture says that acceptable worship is that which pleases and honors God, not necessarily man. So we don't have a lot of bells and whistles in there. We're not there to entertain you. Uh, we're not there to satisfy your desires. We're there to honor God. So if you walk out of a worship service and you hear somebody say, well, I didn't get anything out of that, and you say, well, I didn't know it was for you. It's for God. You worshiped God. Sinners are prone to idolatry. That's who we are by nature. We are predisposed to heed the temptations of the evil one. We have to recognize that about ourselves. Our natural inclinations are to make worship pleasing to the flesh, plausible to fallen reason. You know, you think about some of the suggestions that are offered in the seeker-sensitive movement. Well, that seems to make sense on the surface. The first go around, the first glance, you think, ah, oh, it makes sense. It's reasonable, plausible. 
But come to find out, it's not in God's Word. He's not commanded this. And I think He's wiser than we are. So what this does is inevitably leads to framing public worship according to our own sinful human desires. That's will worship, or as Paul says, self-made religion. You've made it yourself. And that's of no value as a means of grace in dealing with sin, according to Colossians 2.23. So you might think it's a good idea, but in the end it's not. Scripture is sufficient. We believe that. We confess that. It's sufficient to equip Christians for every good work, including that of worship. So if we're called upon and commanded to worship the Lord, if he summons us as the king, then his word is sufficient to teach us and prepare us to come before him and offer him acceptable worship. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited to his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men, or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. So that's the regulative principle of worship. That's what regulates what we do in public worship. Any questions on that? We all set? Okay. Now this is what's called, these are fancy terms, but the dialogical nature of worship, and that simply means that worship is a dialogue. It's a dialogue between God and his people. Two parties coming together for covenant worship. So, Isaiah says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And God reasons with us. He persuades us. He tells us that though we are undeserving and unworthy, in Christ, by his blood, we can become worthy in his sight. And there is that reasonability. So the two parties in the dialogue, God and his people, all people should enter into and participate in the dialogue. There should never be a time in worship when you're not part of the dialogue. Now, I know I always ruffle somebody's feathers when I say this, and I hesitate to do so, but it's important, I think. This is one of the reasons why we don't have a choir. Because when you're sitting in worship, all of a sudden there's a group of people over here in the dialogue, and you're out. And you're not worshiping. Now, you might enjoy it. That's beside the point. All of God's people should be in the dialogue. If I'm not, I know I've told these stories many times, so if you've heard it before, forgive me. My professor and pastor, T. David Gordon, if you know him, he's a little spitfire. They were on vacation in this church, local church, and uh, they had a choir. And at one point in the service, the choir was supposed to sing this wonderful hymn. <laughs> and it turned out it was one of T. David's favorite hymns. So what did he do? When the choir started, he stood up in the middle of the congregation and just started singing, you know? He refused to remain mute. I wish I could have been there to see it. So we have call to worship. God is speaking to us. We respond with the singing of praise. We also offer our prayers to him in response. God asks, how does it stand with you? And we confess our sins. There's this dialogue going on. 
He gives us the assurance of pardon. It's the formal declaration of forgiveness in Christ, which is an important thing. And we do this right up front. So hopefully the rest of the service, we've recognized that we are forgiven and accepted in Christ. There is the Old Testament reading when God is speaking to us unvarnished. We don't have the comments or insights of men. It's just his word, just speaking. God is speaking to us. We respond in praise. God speaks to us again in the New Testament reading, and we respond in prayer. We have the collection, which is another response to what God has told us and done for us. We sing uh, in response as well, the doxology, and then he speaks to us. What does, uh, people have got, how does this, no, not, what do you believe, basically? You're confessing the faith. So he asks us, what do you believe? And according to scripture, we confess the faith together. 1 Corinthians 1.10, we all agree publicly together. We speak the same thing. There is the pastoral prayer as we approach God and ask for his blessing and his answers to our prayers. He speaks to us through the sermon, through his appointed representative. We respond in praise. He gives us the Lord's Supper, welcoming us at his table. We respond in prayer and praise, and he gives us the blessing at the end. So it starts and ends with God, calling us to worship and then blessing us at the end. Any questions on the dialogical? Laura and then Don? It probably fits between relative and dialogical. Something this time of year, the lighting of the Advent week, is that tradition rather than worship? Yeah. The lighting of the Advent wreath, yeah. Um, nice tradition, something you can do maybe in an inspirational service. Like we have a, a Christmas Eve service, which is really an inspirational service. Um, but it's not to be in covenant worship. Yeah. Don? Yeah. Uh, so we don't is it we don't have a choir because we don't have any anthem? Or, I mean, if you have a choir and it augments the singing... It's not against what you're saying. I'm not sure I understand. The choir, we don't have a choir basically because we are the choir. Yeah. So the whole congregation is to be the choir. And there really should never be a time when anybody is left out. Because what I'm saying, that to augment the singing. Oh, 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 yeah. If, If there's a choir that sings with us to help us sing, oh, yeah, that's fine. That's absolutely fine. You know, God gifts some people with good voices and others not. Um, so, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but again, I know you're not saying this, but we wouldn't want to have the choir singing by themselves, solos. Jared? I think the, the one piece that I always struggle with a little bit is confession of sin for two reasons. One, um, I think it can dull the effect. I mean, there's some pretty heavy stuff. I, a lot of times I take a picture of it kind of dissected throughout the week. Um, I think <coughs> confessing to something that you haven't really thought about, if you're, well, I think there are a lot of people here that if you read what it actually says, like a confession of sin, if you ask them individually for the service and you commit to this sin this week, whoa, no, not me. Um, do you think there may be a day for having a dulling effect and insincerity in a corporate confession of sin? Always a possibility of having a dulling effect, yes. Same arguments used for weekly communion. If you have it every week, it's going to become rote. But we say, you know, well, preaching is every week, you know. 
maybe the maybe the preacher's dull, but you know we have sermons every week, and God says we should. Confessing the sins, I mean, clearly in Scripture, God calls us to confession. We have to confess. And secondly, again, 1 Corinthians 1.10, speak the things together, agree together. Well, where else do we do that but in public worship? <clears throat> so we confess our sins together, which we should, I think, and we confess the faith together in terms of we agree on all of this. Now, you may not have committed those sins this week, but there's probably a time in your life when you did, and I did. And so we all corporately say, this is what we as people do, you know. So you distinguish uh, a corporate confession from an individual confession. Which is why we have individual confession, yeah. right? Yeah, because there are some things you struggle with this week that may not be included in that particular, Terry. Pretty much answered it. I was going to say that I think we today don't think in a corporate way. Right. Where God calls us to as a people. Right. Yeah, we don't think as a corporate entity. Like many times in the Old Testament, the prophets will say, God, forgive us, our fathers and our forefathers have sinned and committed iniquity. So the prophet didn't actually do that, but he is identifying himself with the people. Uh, Mary Alice? There is a reason, however satirical, that Reformed Presbyterians are called the frozen chosen. There's a reason for that. It, when you told the story of your friend who stood up in the middle of church and sang with the choir, there are times, I'll speak for myself, when you're preaching or something occurs that you just want to say the amen to. Um, Say it. <laughs> well, that, that's what I'm asking because, you know, it says even the rocks will cry out. You know, I, I just feel sometimes, and I know it can be disruptive, but sometimes we rein ourselves in too much. A little bit, maybe. Oh, yeah, yeah, and then we, we can go to either extreme, right? <laughs> I remember Martin Lloyd-Jones was in his congregation, and there was a guy one Sunday who, after about every other sentence, the guy said, amen, amen. And Lloyd-Jones at one point just stopped and said something about judgment and how God does not like those who are unrestrained or something like that. And he looked at the guy and says, no amen on that? You know? <laughs> So he shut him up, you know, because he looked at it as disruptive. Don? Yeah, we don't have an altar call as such, but I know we get it in the, in the uh, uh, sacrament of the court. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and again, the altar call is something... Well, all, many who do the altar call in good conscience, what they're saying is, look, whenever Jesus called a sinner publicly, he wanted the sinner to come to him and acknowledge it. Okay, so I think that's their rationale. <clears throat> and I get that. But the, but the question is, what do we do in public worship? It's not Jesus walking along the countryside. This is public worship, right? And I think the altar call was intro introduced largely to manipulate those who are attending to get them to make a decision. And it makes the believers uncomfortable. You're sitting in your seat, you're a Christian, and you think to yourself, should I go up? I don't know what I should do. I'm sitting here, I'm not doing anything, you know. And it makes the unbeliever who's going up for whatever reason feel more comfortable, but the Lord's Supper then is just the flip. 
It makes the believer feel comfortable because you're a sinner and you're forgiven and you're accepted at the table. And the unbeliever feels uncomfortable. I'm not doing anything. Why can't I partake? So I think God has that wisely instituted for that reason. Yeah. Jim? A long time ago, I was with the Promise Keepers, and part of my job was to counsel those people who came down to the altar. And many of them would say to me, this is my eighth time, tenth time. <laughs> and they were confused. Right. And so sometimes that can be confusing. Yeah, I think you're right. That's a good point. Yes, sir. Sorry, we're new here. Uh, just trying to understand. So, what's the difference between like somebody singing in front of the church and you worshiping along with them in your heart versus like a pastoral prayer where we're not physically speaking, but we're praying along with the person? What would the difference be between us? Because I listen to Christian radio. I'll have a, I'll hear a worship song. I'm not singing, but I'm worshiping the Lord right. along with that person. So, what's the what's is there a line that you distinguish between? us worshiping with a choir or with somebody singing in front of the church versus just praying along with the pastor but not physically praying. Like, yeah. Where's that line, I guess? That's a very good question. And I think <clears throat> if you look at Scripture, we find examples of corporate prayer through the representative who is praying. Um, unless we're doing a prayer that is written, like hymns are written, we can't all pray the same thing because we don't all know what's being prayed. Now, we do pray, for example, the Lord's Prayer, and we'll all join together. But when it comes to singing praise, that's all written down. We have our hymns, and there's no indication in Scripture that I can think of other than the priests, the Levites in the Old Testament who sang kind of antiphonally. There's no other indication that I see that allows us to worship through the singing of one person. Yeah. I mean, but it's a very good question because prayers and praises are very similar, right? The prayers of David in the Psalms. So it's a very good question. Um, if somebody could prove to me that, that we could do that through a representative singing, I'd be willing to say, okay. I haven't seen it yet, though. Jim? Scott, to add that, we say that when you pray a pastoral prayer, we all say amen afterwards. That is our consenting and agreeing with as if we prayed with you, right? Exactly. Yeah, well said. That's right, because as Jim said, we all say the amen together, and that's even commanded in Scripture for all of us to say the amen. If what I'm praying is not biblical, don't say the amen, because you're testifying that this is your desire and your assurance, as Jim said. Um, Rob? Uh, I'm really excited about answering this. <laughs> you haven't even heard it yet. <laughs> He was married to, I think it's Nicole. Michael, yeah. Uh, and she was up in the tower or something, and he was dancing, and she didn't approve. I feel like my Nicole or whatever her name is, when I see like her charismatic brothers and sisters dancing, so how, how would you respond to that? Is that like circumstantial when David was dancing? She despised David uh, because she thought it was beneath the dignity of a king. Okay, and so I don't think it was necessarily dancing itself, but it was, hey, you're a king. Come on, you, you, you embarrassed me. This is... Uh... So are we allowed to dance? Well, no. <laughs> when Rich starts playing his swaying music, I'm up there going like this, you know, but we're not dancing. Um... They would. Yeah, I've heard them use that argument, but he was not in public worship. 
they're bringing the uh, Ark of the Covenant back up into Jerusalem, and he's just overjoyed, and he's humbling himself before the Lord, honoring the king, the true king. Michael was barren to the end of her life as a result of her despising her husband. That's pretty severe, you know. So, yeah, I've heard many people use that argument, but it doesn't wash because it's not in the context of public worship. Yeah. Anybody else? Okay. Well, the Lord's Day, man is morally obligated to set aside one day in seven for public worship. He's given us six days for our own affairs. Um, One-seventh is not bad. God is very generous. And the moral law is summed up in two great commandments, love God and love your neighbor. And there's no indication that such morality is obsolete under the new covenant. We don't say that the old, that the law, of, uh, we don't say the moral law is only for the Old Testament. There's no indication that the moral law has been suspended under the New Testament, which many will argue. That's Mosaic. That's Old Testament stuff. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. If there's a Sabbath rest entering into the rest of God for eternity, well, then there's going to be a sign of that Sabbath rest. If the Sabbath rest remains, well, then we're going to have the sign, which is the first day of the week that we set apart for God. We commemorate the new creation in so doing, and we foreshadow the heavenly rest. What a privilege it is to foreshadow what we're going to enjoy in heaven. This is to be a foretaste. And so it's a privilege. It's a benefit. It's not meant to be a burden or a chore. Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Now, I've heard some people take that and run with it and saying, well, there you go. I can do what I want. No, Jesus is not saying on the Lord's Day you can just do whatever you want. What he's saying is that if you keep this Sabbath and honor the Lord by it, you will be blessed. It's for your benefit. That's what he's saying. You can't just say, I'm just going to do whatever I want. God never intended this to be an imposition. True faith expresses itself in self-denial, and true faith loves the Lord's Day and all that it offers the means of grace and the communion of saints, the hearing of his word. I mean, all these things true faith grabs onto and is built up by. So on Sunday, we enjoy worship, Christian fellowship, spiritual rest, freedom, nourishment. It's what the Puritans called the market day of the soul. Come, buy and eat. Buy and eat without cost, right? It doesn't cost you anything. Well, you have to get up. It makes you lose a little sleep. But come, buy and eat. This is the day for the soul. And this is what um, largely the pastor's job, the minister's job is, to feed my sheep, right? If we're doing our job, the sheep are going to be fed. That's the idea. Honor the Lord by feeding the sheep. So we devote one-seventh of our time as a tribute to the Lord who blesses the sacrifice. You sacrifice this time. The world tells you, what a waste. You're wasting a seventh of your life doing nothing, listening to some guy talk. No. It's offered up as a tribute to the Lord our God who blesses the sacrifice. I don't know how he does it, but he blesses it, just like the Lord's Supper. I don't know how the Spirit blesses these simple elements, but he uses these elements to build your faith and to cultivate your assurance 
and to strengthen you. If you turn your foot back, turn back your foot from the Sabbath, that is from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I'll make you ride on the heights of the earth. There's the blessing. Again, the world thinks it's foolish, but God says it's a, it's a wise thing. Laura? Even many churches have cheapened this because it's not the case. Right. They have services on Saturday, right. Um, or, or, or some other day. Because they think that, well, and again, I, I want to try to be charitable toward the intention. They're trying to get people in, you know, and so forth. But that's, as we learn and grow, we understand that it doesn't matter. God will use what he's appointed in the ways that he wants to use it. And it's like that movie, if you build it, they'll come. Well, it's sort of like if you do it, God will bring them in his time. I mean, we keep saying that we've, we've really done nothing different for 28 years. We might have tweaked a couple things, but it's the same thing. Well, why? I mean, if there's no bells and whistles, why would God bring people? Well, because I think people are getting fed. I hope people are getting fed. Any other questions on the Lord's? Oh, Heather? Okay. I just wanted to share that I, I feel like there's an element of being patient and having grace with like okay so I grew up in a very strict Baptist background and I felt like even though I was raised in that I really didn't have a strong relationship with the Lord and um, I ended up falling into like a Pentecostal background at a younger age in my teens, and I felt like in that moment it was like the Lord was sending me to like I needed to see that people actually can worship the Lord and love Him. But it was like a stepping stone to get me where I am today. Right. But I mean, like I don't know. I can see how some people get stuck in that like Pentecostal background. And, right. Um. They don't fully get meat out of the word, but I I can see how the Lord can use whatever stage you're in for his glory and to move you on to deeper oh, yeah. relationships. That's so true. And, you know, again, as my experience in the charismatic background and your experience probably in the Pentecostal background, these people are very sincere, enthusiastic. They love the Lord. Uh, we don't want to question that. But God does use those kinds of things. And let's face it, he reserved his severest rebukes for the Pharisees. So, you know, we're so thankful for our Reformed Presbyterian heritage, but <laughs> we've got to be careful. We don't want to become Pharisees, and it's so easy to slip into. Um, all of us are prone to it. So, yeah, we, we've got to be careful. I was reading, I think it was yesterday, this morning, Ephesus. You know, Jesus says, look, you've done all these things right, but you've left your first love. That could be us. We've got to be very careful. Mm-hmm. Grace? So, how do you tell the difference between, in the Old Testament, at least, moral law and then, like, other laws like um, so like you shall not eat pig or you know you right. eat kosher. Like what's the what's the difference? Like how do we tell what's um, still applicable to us today and what is not necessary? 
Right. That's a very good question. How do we distinguish the laws of the Old Testament? And typically what we do is divide them up into three different kinds. There's moral laws that are the Ten Commandments and the things that issue from those. There's judicial laws, things that were used for the state, like um, how the civil realm is to be regulated. And then there are what's called ceremonial laws, sacrifices and so forth, all of those kind of prefiguring Christ and his sacrifice. And so what we say is that the moral laws are moral. That means they're applicable to all men everywhere at all time. That's moral. The judicial laws, they governed Israel as a state, a nation state, and they are no longer in force except by principle. Let me give an example. They required them to put fences around their roofs because oftentimes they'd go up there, right? And that would protect life. Well, we don't have to protect life like that, but we put fences around our pools. The principles. Um, some of the judicial things like crimes that were committed in the Old Testament. Well, we don't necessarily stone people for this crime, but it is a crime. The principle is that's wrong. Ceremonial laws, sacrifices, Jesus fulfilled them, you know. So those three things, moral, judicial, and ceremonial. And the, the last two are no longer in force. Yeah. Very important distinction. It's a very good question. Oh, sorry, Jared. Yeah, I love the, the, the uh, Lord's Day piece. Um, you, know, you see so many different interpretations of what keeping the Lord's Day means, right? Um, in the world I grew up in, our church had this Sunday morning service. And then um, after church, we would always go to Grandma's house and meet with the rest of the family for a uh, supper about 2 o'clock. It was usually time to eat. And then Sunday was kind of a family day. So the rest of the family went to Catholic Church. Our family went to non-denominational charismatic church. And then we convened for this, this, this family dinner. And it had been that way for hundreds of years. Hundreds? Yeah. Uh, went back to Italy. Is that that was what it was about. Sunday was a day of familial interaction. Right. So, I guess how, you know, all my family's birthday parties are Sunday after church. Like, you know, you've got how do you parse that? What do we mean by making it the Lord's day? You know, we, I mean, I understand I'm not going around the apartments after church. Uh, I have in the past. Like, that's pretty black and white to me. Right. Okay, that's probably, probably not a good example. Would you refuse to have a birthday party, for instance? Um, Me, personally? Well, I mean, it's a good question. How do we do this? I mean, it's easy to say, well, we have to sanctify the Lord's Day, but then how do you do it? And this is where all we're all going to come up with different understanding, but... I think it begins with public worship, obviously. The king summons us to worship, so we have to be at public worship. There's no option there. He summons us. You don't, you don't deny a summons of the king. And, of course, in our church, uh, we, close, we open the day and close the day with worship, so we kind of bookend the day, which helps us to observe the day for the Lord. And the rest of it, you know, uh, there are things that we would do on other days of the week that we shouldn't do on the Lord's Day. The Lord gives us six days for our own affairs, and the seventh day is for him. Okay, so a birthday party. What are we doing in a birthday party? 
Well, we're honoring a particular individual. Is that the Lord's day? Is that honoring the Lord? I, I mean, you're loving your family member. There's nothing wrong with a birthday party in and of itself, but I don't think it's appropriate on the Lord's day, you know, because the focus then is taken off the Lord on somebody else. But again, getting into these details, I mean, we could spend a week of Sunday schools talking about details, do this, do that, and then we become Pharisees, right? They had, what, 600 and some laws or something like that? I don't know, but it's like, do this, do don't. If your heart is attuned to honor the Lord and you know his word, then I think it's going to help you make these decisions with discernment, right? I think I've, it's really hard. I mean, I've gone through various phases in my life. Some phases I've been very, very strict, and some phases I've not been as strict because it's almost like a rebound, right? The pendulum swinging back and forth. I think my swings have become like this rather than like that. Um, I'm a lot more, I, I do want to honor the Lord's day, and I don't do things that I would do on other days, but sometimes there are exceptions. And I'll give you one. I mean, if my wife has, is sick or had a really hard week and we get to Saturday night and she realizes, oh, I don't have anything for lunch tomorrow, well, I'll stop and pick something up and take it home, right? Because it's a work of mercy, in my, my view. Now, somebody may disagree with me. That's okay. But in my view, that's not something I would do regularly. It's not something I would advocate. But if it's in a situation where I am trying to help my wife who's had a really hard week or whatever. So there you go. there's one example of an exception. Right, right. <laughs> Don't tell her you said that. <laughs> That probably wouldn't be the wisest thing. <laughs> Anything but an ox, yes. Stubborn German, yes, but not an ox. You can tell her I said that. Anybody else on Mark? Well, Scott, and, and really on the on the other side is it is a day of feasting. It is it is not a day of mourning. Right. And I think so often, um, you know, uh, as a child, you might say, oh, what a, what a dour day. Um, and that's not what it's supposed to do. And you, you've done things where it's like, all right, we're having ice cream. We normally don't have ice cream. Right. You, you have to do things. And I think there's practical ways that we can make it an uplifting day rather than this weighty day right. where we're training up little Pharisees to just follow laws right? understanding the blessing that rest is because Sunday is nothing more than us reflecting upon the rest that we find in Christ not in ourselves right that's a very good point and I think you're right and there's that <clears throat> that razor's edge that we have to navigate you know that we want to abide by the regulations and the guidelines the scripture gives us. I mean, there is an idea that we're observing something, but you're right. We want to make it a special day. And one of the things we did growing, when the kids were growing up was to have ice cream. We didn't have ice cream all week long, and they looked forward to it. Don? Yeah, how do you deal with the professions? I mean, I, I was a pilot, so I, I ended up having to fly on Sunday. Right. Some of them were six-day trips, some of them four-day trips. Right. How do you deal with that? 
Yeah, it's hard when professions call you away and so forth, necessitate working. Um, and those are questions that you have to answer to your own conscience. Like there are some professions that are uh, necessary, the doctor, the nurse, the police officer, those kinds of things, the officer in the, in the army and so forth. Other professions are not necessarily necessary, but the obligations of your job might hinder you. Like you, you have a four-day trip. You leave on a Thursday and you don't come back until a Monday. That's you're over in Europe or whatever. So, but maybe on the Lord's Day in Europe, you're able to find a church where you can worship, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's not an easy thing. And you can see why the Pharisees became Pharisees. I mean, this is a hard question. Their problem was they began to focus so much on externals that they forgot the heart, you know. And it was all about do's and don'ts. And when you have a religion of do's and don'ts, then it does become a burden. It's not Christianity. So, oh, Gretchen? I had a, a boss who made me work on a Sunday once. And um, he knew that I didn't want to do it. So he called my house and he told me that there are churches in North Carolina also. So um, what we did was we went to the work site and then I went to church while everybody else started the work and then once church was over, I found a local church where we were at and I went to the work site to finish the day and came home. But yeah, it, it, it's a hard thing. Yeah, it is. It is hard and, you know, we have to be, we have to be gracious with one another. We have to encourage one another. Oftentimes I think... Um, right honoring of the Lord's Day is um, more caught than taught. Now, again, the pulpit should not shy away from it. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that if we as God's people find joy in the Lord's Day, as feasting is, Mark was saying, I think that's catchy. Parents, if they really enjoy the Lord's Day, I think children recognize that. But if parents are just a bunch of do's and don'ts, well, then for the children, it's really a pain, you know. I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't do that. That's it. But if the, if the parents love the Lord's Day, love their children, and they still say, you can't do that, can't do that, well, then it's a lot easier. You know, we're making a distinction here. We're making the day special somehow. We're not going to do this, but we are going to have ice cream. You know, so that's a good thing. Anybody else on this Lord's Day? Okay. We're like trees that God cultivates to bear fruit for his glory. This is pointed out in Psalm 92. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They're planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. So that's where we flourish. This is why public worship is so important. They still bear fruit in old age. They're ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. So we're planted in the rich soil of God's house in public worship. This is the one thing David wanted. One thing have I asked, that I may dwell in your house forever. And again, if, if the ministry is doing its job, which so often we fail, um, we are being feasted, we're being nourished, and that's important. It's by God's word and spirit that we receive the spiritual sap and virtue that makes us fruitful. We maintain this sacred rhythm of one day in seven. You know, they've done studies, very practically speaking, of how beneficial it is to take a day of rest. I think Russia, at one time they tried to uh, 
change the week into a five or six day week? It's a 10 day. 10 day? Yeah, it's France and Russia both did the 10 day experiment. And it, it was miserable. Yeah, there's this rhythm that God has put into us, seven. And one of those <clears throat> is to be a day of rest. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. <clears throat> the Lord Jesus, if it's good enough for the Lord Jesus, it's good enough for us. So we take root in the courts of God. You plant yourself. You're faithful as much as possible. Now, providence hinders you with sickness or something, I understand. But as much as possible, you're rooted in the courts of God. You draw from his ordinances. You bring forth the fruit of godliness. And the Spirit of God promises. This is something you can bank on. He promises to convey grace so that you grow higher, stronger, more mature in Christ. That's how we grow more mature. Right? God, Christ gives these gifts to the church to help us all grow more mature so that the work of the ministry can go on. We minister one to another. And there's a lot of ministry that goes on one to another. I love that. It's in the house of God that we spread our branches, we're invigorated, and the spiritual discipline leads to good works by which God is glorified and we edify one another. Note how the wicked flourish. It's like grass that withers and is inevitably destroyed. They say you're wasting your time. <laughs> grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. So, any questions on that? Again, the Lord's Day. Rob? Um, you keep talking about yeah. Yeah. Your appetite is being whetted. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good desire to have the Sabbath every single day. I mean, it'd be kind of tough to do. Calvin did it. He preached every single day in Geneva. Um, but I think it's a great desire. And it does show that whatever it is that's going on here, you're benefiting from it, right? And it shows that there's true grace in your heart. Because again, there's no bells and whistles. We're not entertaining you. I'm not even funny. That's so. Yeah. My kids laugh because they say, I, I can try to tell a joke and nobody would laugh. And then I'll say something that I don't even know and they'll laugh at me. And it's like, okay. You know. Anybody else before we close? We can't get through the rest of these. I know there's not enough time. But, Julia? I think that um, appreciating the Lord's Day is kind of like appreciating high literature. It's something that is a skill we have to learn. Good point. And appreciating good art is something that we, we might not look at and go, oh, yeah, that's what I want to look at all the days of my life. Um, but once we understand more about it and once we learn about how to appreciate it, it becomes easier to appreciate. And then we do, like Rob said, start to want it ourselves. Right. And look at the other things um, by comparison to other literature or art and say, mm, that's just not not good enough. It's not good It's not like this over here. This is so much better. That's a good point. That's a very good point, that you develop that taste, and through discipline, it becomes more and more nourishing. That's really good. Yeah, I like that. Well, um, let's prepare our hearts by prayer. Father, we thank you for this time. We're grateful for the privilege of worship. It is the high day of the week, and we are grateful that today we can come into your presence. You are gracious and merciful. And we're thankful that you accept us in Christ, sinners though we are. Please prepare us now, we ask, in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.